Welcome to the FedHeads, a weekly podcast from Grant Thornton Public Sector. Join the FedHeads each week as Robert Shea and a celebrity guest host talk about the arcana of government management and the people who are working hard every day to improve it. Welcome to another episode of FedHeads. We're joined once again by my good friend, Stan Soloway. Stan, thanks for coming back. Yeah, it's amazing that I keep coming back for more, isn't it? <laughs> it always surprises me, but I'm delighted to have you again. This week, we're going to talk to a colleague, recently joined Grant Thornton from uh, Los Angeles, where she had a career serving the city of Los Angeles in a variety of capacities. So without further ado, Monique Earle recently joined us as director in Grant Thornton Public Sector, and uh, you had a number of capacities, Monique, in Los Angeles. Tell us about the various positions you held when you were there, and thanks for joining us. Thank you, Robert, for having me. And Stan, such a pleasure to meet you. I'm excited to be on Fed Heads. Um, I have become quite a fan as of late, as oh you can imagine. Oh, my gosh. So. That, that, that takes us to 11. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so I started my career in the city in 2002, and I started as a field deputy in a local council office for Councilwoman Cindy Misikowski in sort of the ritzy um, Pacific Palisades, Santa Monica Canyon area. Wow. And, and while it is a ritzy um, area, it doesn't mean that they didn't have a whole bunch of issues that were happening um, within government in which their only source to resolve those issues was the city of Los Angeles and the local council office. So I got a great opportunity to jump knee deep into helping people solve their various challenges from my trash didn't get picked up today to there was a big rain and my house is getting ready to slide down a hill. So you can imagine sort of the texture, texture and breadth of the different issues that happen. I, once the councilwoman was turned out of office, I had an opportunity to go to the city of Richmond, Virginia, where I worked in the office of the mayor for um, former governor, Doug Wilder, who was then the mayor for the city um, of Richmond. And I went to grad school at American University in DC and then came back to LA and started into this whole world of public finance. So I worked for the then chair of the city's budget and finance committee, council member Bernard Parks. And then I was tapped by Mayor Antonio Viragosa to become the deputy mayor over budget and fiscal policy. And mind you, this was all during the financial crisis. And so we were in triage mode. We were trying to save jobs. We were trying to make sure that the city didn't go into bankruptcy. And then really just to shore up the city's financial footing at the time by not only increasing revenues, but also just ensuring that, you know, the government didn't go down sort of that rabbit hole of fiscal trouble. And so that was a great experience for me. Once the mayor was turned out of office, then went over to the city controller where I got a taste firsthand of the auditing world. It so did a lot with audits and fiscal policy and then went over to the Department of Transportation. And that's where I was the executive officer and assistant general manager over budget and, and fiscal policy. But also I had oversight of the field crews. So I had all the crews that stripe streets, paint curbs, build and repair, um, light signals. 
And then I really cut my teeth in the whole world of DEI before it was DEI um, because we had a program called Vision Zero, which is you know across the country and around the world in terms of a transportation program that looks at eliminating traffic deaths. And we would use the data to determine where these deaths were happening, mostly in Los Angeles. They were happening in the poorest neighborhoods in the cities where the citizens are the most vulnerable. And then we were looking at strategies on how to save lives and prevent those traffic deaths. And so we took that model and then began to apply it across the agency and said, you know, if we're saving lives on our streets, how can we begin to save lives in other capacities, whether it's through employment, whether it's through contracting opportunities, whether it's just through the sheer culture of the agency. And so that really started me on a path as it relates to DEI. And then um, the last job I held was at the Department of Water and Power, where I served as that um, agency's um, first chief diversity, equity, and inclusion officer. You have a fascinating background. And one of the things that struck me is listening to you, I want to get into the DEI discussion, certainly, but, but one of the things that's fascinating is if I think of it from a company perspective, you've been at corporate headquarters, you've been in field units, and you've been on the customer side. Yeah. Around government, that's actually not unheard of, but it's also not all that common. And I think at the triangle, each doesn't understand the other very well. Are there one or two nuggets of insight that you gain from that varied kind of experience that you think folks like us who are and the folks listening to this who are really passionate about government management need to keep in mind as they're dealing with that in that in that unique world? Well, I think for me, it is always understanding and having that well-rounded background really helped to understand that there is always a human or humans behind all public policy. And so understanding that and keeping that at the forefront um, to me is so critical. I think oftentimes, you know, policy is, is kind of made in a vacuum. And particularly when you're away from the local government aspect, because everything that's done in local government, you can see it, feel it, taste it. It's there right in front of you. Um, but sometimes, you know, you can get in sort of the theoretical sort of understanding and ideological understanding of public policy and forget about that human who is impacted you know, positively or negatively by whatever decisions or policies that are made. You know, we when I worked in the White House and when I worked in the Congress, we thought passing a law or writing a, a memo, you were almost done with your job. <laughs> Little thought was given to how to flow down those requirements so people really understood what they meant, even less so about measuring the impact of those policies. Yeah. Can you talk about your relationship with the federal government to standpoint where it worked, where it didn't, and what you think people need to do to have a stronger relationship with the federal government and local agencies? Yeah, it's, you know, obviously the local governments depend quite a bit on federal government in terms of revenues, in terms of grants, in terms of overarching um, policies that happen. So it is that constant communication with our elected representatives and, and administrative representatives on the federal side to make sure that we are communicating what is happening. We're boots on the ground. You know, we are those entities that get to see what's actually happening and that effectuate that policies that are sometimes passed down through government, as, I mean, through federal government as mandates. 
Um, and so I think it's that constant flow of communication, not just on a compliance side for the grant that was issued or, you know, whatever's the case in terms of the revenue stream, but just also giving real life examples and saying, how can we sort of tighten up certain things for the next round of funding and legislation that is going to happen for local government? You know, one of the things I hear a lot is, um, from, and I'm involved in a project now through the National Academy of Public Administration, where we're looking at public benefits programs and the, you, know, you talk about mandates and it, hear a lot from state and local officials that the federal government can set the requirements up here, but let us yeah. figure out this way to implement. Give us the guardrails, give us the parameters, but let us innovate. Let us, because it's going to be different in Mississippi than it is in Detroit than it is in Kansas City. So, is that a, f- a fair assessment of how you see it as well? Oh, absolutely. Yes, we need that flexibility at the local level in order to really truly implement what's happening. Because like you said, at the you know federal level, they don't necessarily get an opportunity to see. They set sort of these mandates, but you know, each jurisdiction is absolutely different. So having that flexibility is critical because what you'll find um, oftentimes is that you know local governments can't spend the funds that they have been given because maybe there are too many um, guardrails. And by the time you go back through the cycle of getting something reevaluated and and approved again, um, you sort of miss the mark on helping people who could actually use, you know, those dollars and cents to change their lives. You know, the diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility initiatives currently being driven by the Biden administration is a good example. The administration has taken an incredibly ambitious approach. They want not only federal agencies to ensure their internal diversity, but to assess and improve the extent to which the programs they're administering are reaching traditionally underserved communities. And we know that that hasn't always, that's often not the case. They're often missing the very populations they're intended to serve. You held this portfolio when you were in Los Angeles How did you see it? Did you see a transformation beginning to take place, people realizing this disconnect, or do we still have a long way to go or both? You know, I have to say it's a little bit of both. You know, diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives didn't just start in 2020. You know, when these executive directives and orders were kind of written and started to shape whatever policy um, is going to happen around DEI, things were already happening, boots on the ground. But now, with sort of the official title of DEI, it sort of set a stage for confrontation on different levels, not only internally um, with employees and programs and people who just didn't agree internally with how the programs were being administrated and are we showing favoritism in some areas and, and you know, so where are the laws as well around showing favoritism and, and what that does for different programs. Um, but also you just begin to see people kind of, kind of, you know, like I said, push back on what was sort of being understood as what DE&I actually is instead of looking at the program, looking at the impact, looking at the data and saying, who is this going to help? And we are just going to put programs in place to do just that, as opposed to giving it this huge moniker to set up sort of this philosophical argument. 
So yes, things were are happening, but then there's also sort of this confrontation that's you know taking place that you know is causing a reckoning, if you will, in the whole sphere of DEI. You know, that's such an important point, and I think the as we've seen this at the federal level with the with the directors, but also in the last administration, there's a lack of clarity in most people's minds of what DEI means, and it means different things to different people, and it means different things even within a given program. You take procurement, for example. One of the big initiatives in the federal government is to increase opportunities for disadvantaged communities to get access to federal funds through contracts, which is fabulous. Yeah. But the other side, another side of DEI is really around closing the wealth gap, and those two don't necessarily go together. I could have companies in Fairfax, Virginia, which is a very well-heeled community. What about a larger company that's actually setting up a software development factory in Grand in Grand Rapids, Michigan? and actually bringing people in there. So how you define your objectives also becomes, I think a matter of not only contention, but it lacks clarity. Yeah, absolutely. And then I also, you know, started to see um, situations where a DEI officer is, was brought into an organization and then you've had, you know, maybe your, your CEOs or your general manager, or whatever say, woo, great, go make that happen. <laughs> and that is the wrong path to go because it still takes those folks at the top, those people at the top to institute the overall change within the organization. And those folks at the top have to be willing to use their power and their privilege to really break up that system that caused a lot of these problems and situations in the first place. What a fantastic point to end on, Monique an important lesson that I think everybody who's focused on this can take, especially when we're getting a lot of the blowback that you mentioned. Um, really important work. We're proud to have you at Grant Thornton. Congratulations on a great career in public service, but I'm really looking forward Thank to working with you. Absolutely. Same here, Robert. Thank you so much. Thank you and Stan for this opportunity. Thanks, Monique. Thanks for listening to The Fed Heads, brought to you by Grant Thornton Public Sector. We'd love to hear from you. Connect with us on Twitter at GT Public Sector to join the conversation. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.